Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Please join me in welcoming our television and webcast audiences to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan. I'm president of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and we thank our viewing audience for joining us today. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we're dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to our city, to the province, and to Canada. Through our youth and young leaders programs, civic action diversity partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media partnerships and social media properties, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. Thank you for joining this conversation today. And before I formally introduce our speaker, I'd like to tell you about some of our upcoming events this season. On April 15th, come find out how New Brunswick's newest and Canada's youngest premier, Brian Gallant, plans to move the province toward a more diverse economy, spurred on by major projects like Energy East Pipeline and investments in mining. And on April 28th, we are proud to recognize one of this country's most distinguished Canadians, the Right Honourable Paul Martin, with our 2014 Lifetime Achievement Award, an award that celebrates the lifelong efforts and leadership of extraordinary Canadians. For a full listing of the club's upcoming events and to order tickets, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I'm pleased to introduce today's guest speaker. A few facts. Journalism as a profession is being scrutinized more than ever. What gives? Let's face it, the digital age has a lot of influence on how we think and behave. Journalism as a practice and a service is also undergoing intense change. Just look at the headlines of the past year. Journalists jailed in Egypt. Journalists beheaded by ISIS. Reporters under fire in war-torn regions around the world. NBC's Brian Williams. Lots of questions are being posed. Of late, it's usually not the journalists who are asking. Enter Mr. David Walmsley, a distinguished member of the Fifth Estate, as journalism is often referred to. Today, he will answer some of those questions. Mr. Walmsley returned to the Globe and Mail as its editor-in-chief last March. He had left to take on the role of Director of News Content at CBC News. Previously, he was Managing Editor of the Globe and Mail from 2009 to 2012. In announcing his new role at the Globe, the publisher and chief executive officer, 
pointed out that Mr. Wamsley would be taking over the helm, quote, at a pivotal time for our industry, as consumer needs continually change and the role of journalism needs to adapt, close quote. A huge undertaking for which the editor-in-chief is well qualified. Mr. Wamsley has held senior roles at our country's largest news organizations. He came to Canada after working for British newspapers, including the Daily Mail and Daily Telegraph. He was here for the launch of the National Post in 1998 and worked for CBC News and the Toronto Star before joining the Globe in 2006. Before I relinquish the podium, I want to let our live audience know that Mr. Wamsley has graciously agreed to take your questions after his speech. Now, without further delay, Mr. Wamsley, the Canadian Club of Toronto, Canada's podium of record is now yours. Thanks very much, Jennifer, and uh, good afternoon to you. No pressure at all. Eh? It's a stable industry and everything's under control. I'm going to spend 25 minutes talking. I've timed it, so I think I can keep it exactly to record, and then open it to questions. No holes barred. I'm going to split the talk into three main parts. First, a broad sense of where we are in this election year. Secondly, how the media can, trust, can build trust in the competitive landscape. And finally, for me, and this is the best bit, I'm going to take you inside the newsroom to what I think is a pretty special way to live. The world outside our newsrooms is a blur of complexity. Trust has been largely demolished. Institutions fight to convey their purpose. The electorate feels disenfranchised on the one hand, but increasingly fails to turn up to vote in the other. The influx of information the sheer voluminous nature of all that is thrown at us each day reduces our very capacity to understand what it is that we can grasp in order to make sense of an insecure and at times frightening world. Study after study shows the capacity to inform is reduced by the avalanche of information. Only a few short years ago, the hardware technological capacity to handle information was the equivalent of every person on earth receiving almost 200 newspapers a day. That's an old estimate. Today, that number, some studies suggest, has almost doubled. If only everyone was buying 200 newspapers a day, <laughs> or even one newspaper a day. Of course, we can all narrow our searches, identify what interests us, but what capacity do we have to make sense of it all? Who and what can we trust? Where does the stability of reason and clarity reside? We need a long-term view, one that is comfortable bringing context to all that we do, holding a mirror to our country and her direction. In modern times, I think the economic crisis of 2008-09 was the start of a new chapter. Within three short years, we had the Arab Spring. In Tunisia, in 2011, Mohamed Bouazizi doused himself in gasoline, crying that when the corrupt officials took away his cart, he could no longer earn his living as a street vendor. He died aged 26. Tunisian youth unemployment sat at about 32%. In Spain, youth employment hit 
a structural problem that will take years to overcome. There has been no revolution in Spain, in part, I think, because the family fabric was able to support its youngest citizens, and many were able to leave their homeland for work in a more prosperous Germany. But the king, Juan Carlos, chosen by Franco all those years ago, abdicated following a bumpy ride in the press. In Canada, of course, a much more stable portrait exists. But the understudied phenomenon that I believe that can be applied to all of the political class is that for the first time, they shrunk inside themselves, uncertain, and some actually feeling fear, because no longer could they control the levers that control the mob. Equally, our expectations as citizens of the political class have arguably risen too high. How can a political system designed so long ago keep up with an ever more connected and interrelated and interconnected world? The politician, by definition, is a short-term animal, where the incumbent seeks the status quo and the challenger seeks to unseat. But from whatever side of the debate, the commonality is too often a lack of ideas. It was Ram Emanuel, elected again last night in Chicago, who concluded that democratic traditions have changed wholesale, in large part due to the blizzard of machines we use to connect our lives. In the old days that probably ended with Reagan, the voters used to choose the representatives. That's not very controversial. But imagine today's world, where it is the representatives who choose their voters. Ideas are targeted. Policies are created as political documents the world over, as the platform the politician sits on finds itself relevant less and less to the masses. If you add in the poor turnout to the lack of brave ideas needed in a complex world, we find ourselves pushing against an overheated environment of political warfare that acts as an accelerant to the already burning bonfire of trust. Political reporting and the stenography that goes with that is certainly part to blame. So what can be done? I admit that one of the Achilles of my business is that we don't naturally offer safe harbor for ideas. So the globe, under me, is committed to changing that. In May, we will launch a new forum for ideas, and the only criterion that must be met is that the subject matter is complex. For too long, we have used as an excuse the disruption of our industry to become wan and brittle scrutineers of those in power. For too long, we have hoped good work in the past would be enough to count on our readers of tomorrow. We have to be a part of our society, not to tear it down. We need to invigorate public affairs in this country and delink ourselves from the conventional narratives that are easy but lazy to hold to. Why in a country as advantaged as Canada, where we have the immigration, the language skills, the natural resources, and the quality of life in our cities to attract the very best, do we also have a curse? our inability to deliver enough extremely large global success stories. I believe it is in part because our narrative is limited. We produce quality work, small to medium-sized companies do a great job, and then they get eaten up, often by a U.S. giant. Why? When you meet the U.S. ambassador to Canada, and it doesn't seem to matter which one, their briefcase is filled not only with the priorities such as trade and border security, but also copyright, intellectual property rights, the United States designed a judicial framework that protects U.S. companies at the cost of large foreign entities. 
This for years has been seen in display in Delaware. Now a key battleground for fighting patent rights takes place in East Texas. The Apples and Googles do a good job using the judicial framework, winning battle after battle and losing only a few. And in Europe, they fight mercilessly against regulation and a legal system that doesn't support them. In Canada, we don't even discuss it. That, in part, is my fault. News organizations are attracted to contests, to binary propositions where there's an easy villain and a quote-unquote good guy. Add into that another of our vexing shortcomings, our tradition of speaking down to our readers instead of speaking up. Where is the intellectual capital that I am putting into the marketplace? If, as I argue, the politician has been successful at destroying his and her product, that product being politics, and if the pressure plates are squeezing the body politic in ways never before felt, is this not the time where conditions have never been riper for the fourth estate to come up the middle and lead society, involve everyone in the great debates, and recognize leadership comes in different guises? It cannot surely be that leadership is ex officio because someone had their name on a ballot. If trust is tumbling in our politicians and our institutions, well, what about journalism? We're not exactly trusted as a group either. I don't think you would buy a second-hand car off me and ask the editor of Rolling Stone magazine how his week has been. <laughs> For a long time, we've left it to Hollywood to tell our story. Yet I would contend the last really acutely observed movie of our business were a lifetime ago, The Killing Fields, and before that, All the President's Men. This isn't to say there haven't been solid attempts, and I would welcome again Hollywood's efforts to amplify the nuanced world of quality journalism. But as an industry, we have given ground. So I am delighted to be here at the Canadian Club because it affords me an opportunity to not only reflect but also project my business. It is an all-too-rare sighting for an editor-in-chief to take the stage at a non-industry event and to try to explain himself. Far too often, the editor appears because of a mistake or a particularly large win. The rest of the time, the engagement with society is relatively cloistered, and that has to change. You see, we live in something of a paradox as journalists. On the one hand, the most complex journalism, at its bravest, is extremely difficult. My longest story took me 17 years to complete. But we self-defeat because we always take great professional pride in making our work look easy. I need to recalibrate the understanding somewhere closer to a middle. When we explain how we did a story, I know it will increase our standing with all of you in this room and within society more generally. For too long, we have left it for the story to do the talking. We need a better conversation. So how do I make that difference and build more trust within the community? In the interest of time, I'll give just one example. Two weeks ago, we ran an investigation into the funding of the Royal Ontario Museum. It was a thorough piece of investigative work that took eight months and dozens of interviews. To highlight the work, I ran a sidebar with the main piece highlighting the careers of the three reporters involved, and I asked them to tell the readers of how they had spoken to so many people until we knew what the story was that we would print. Very often, just as we see with clinical trials, the richness comes from not what is just proven, 
but the material that stays on the cutting room floor also informs the story. Those are valuable facts, the ones we don't publish. And the rigid checks and balances that are commonplace at the Globe and other news organizations, they may exist, but we don't do a good enough job of explaining the process when we publish the final piece. There is a cost to our journalism. There is also a value. But I need help. So I'm in discussion with Google News and Mountain View, California, to engage in a trust project. Richard Gingras, a veteran of the news business in the United States, heads it up. His father-in-law was the scriptwriter of Spartacus. He had the world at his feet until the McCarthy witch hunts took it away. Richard knows the power of societal pressures and what it means to have rights protected and a fight worth fighting. Google hasn't always been an easy partner for us journalists. As Mark McKinnon, one of our intrepid foreign correspondents, reports from Ukraine, he has yet to bump into the Google correspondent. <laughs> but what Google can do is inform the world better than most. And that is why we are trying to find a way of changing the Google algorithm so it shows a bias to trusted sources, not just to the most up-to-date ones. By giving space to the techniques of our journalism, we build trust, and with that trust comes the reward of more eyeballs. And it's an area that we are committed at the globe to lead. So let's go inside the newsroom. One of the crown jewels of the globe is its business and investing coverage. Next month, we will expand our reach in print and digitally. We will commit to improving commentary, including brave writing from leading industrialists around the world, taking on some of the sacred cows of Canada and beyond. I've transferred 25 people internally to new roles in Report on Business and hired eight others. It's a positive story and one I'm proud to convey. It also helps to have in my boss, Philip Crawley, a remarkable publisher who knows inside out the importance of journalism to society. Together with our ownership, I'm pretty blessed. If there are journalistic shortcomings, they are mine alone. I am expected to be best in class, and I have been given the tools to do that. Nothing less will do, and I love the simplicity of that contract. To achieve best in class, we must be relentless and we must be brave, and each year we must be better. We will offer up new ideas as we break from the conventional narrative. We understand who buys our paper and the ROB magazine and subscribers to our digital offerings, but we can do an awful lot more for them to help them in their lives, to challenge and provoke and to connect the country under one umbrella. It's almost old-fashioned to say, but the Globe is our national town hall and the forum even older than the Canadian Club herself, where we do connect the disparate regions and priorities under one roof. And that roof for the Globe has expanded with bureaus now in Rio de Janeiro, listening posts in Dubai and India, and we've also announced we are opening a bureau in California to widen the debate beyond the eastern seaboard. Why California? Because in population terms, it represents one of Canada's largest provinces, with 500,000 Canadians in LA alone. I've doubled our staff in Alberta, opened a bureau in Fort McMurray and launched an Alberta edition to complement the very successful BC edition launched in 2005. The globe's moving fast and hard in one direction, but of course, all of this requires the magic of our content. The blank page and ink and in pixels is the professional delight of the creatives I work with. 
I have a simple maxim for success. Ruin the day to improve the week to make the month memorable. When Edward Snowshoe died in solitary confinement, the authorities said he was largely to blame. He had killed himself. And that's where the story could have ended, except the journalist's gut wouldn't let us. The four most powerful words in my armory are, go find the story. So Patrick White, one of those rare reporters with soft hands, perfect hearing, and 20-20 vision, went on a Canadian odyssey that took him from his desk at head office in Toronto to Fort McPherson Northwest Territories, but as far north as you can go, and then on to the mind-numbing closed world of Corrections Canada, a government body that answers first and foremost to itself. Fort McPherson is where Eddie Snowshoe's mother lives, and she had a story to tell. Her 24-year-old son did kill himself, but he did so after spending 162 days in solitary confinement, a punishment layered on after punishment from the the original misdemeanor in prison of brandishing a juice box. Each time he was transferred to a different prison, the clock was reset back to zero. He had mental health problems and was largely forgotten. The story of torture, for that is what it is, took Patrick and his team months to research and write. The prison authorities didn't want to help. In fact, Eddie's mother never heard from Corrections Canada or a single person in government. We were the first people to speak to her. And today, as with other days, 1,800 inmates languish in provincial and federal solitary cells across Canada, while in the United States, the use of solitary confinement is falling. Why is that? Because in the United States, they've concluded it's an unjust punishment. But who shines the light on the prison system? And who has the capacity, crucially, to outweigh Corrections Canada? The Fourth Estate. With the conditions of our society today, We enjoy those conditions that have never been riper for us to help lead. Of course, we cannot bring Eddie back, but it was a very special moment when, because of the Globe's reporting, that Patrick was able to telephone his mother, Effie Bella Snowshoe, that her son's name had been raised on the floor of the House of Commons. He had been read into the history of this country, and he will not be forgotten. Those four powerful words that commissioned the Snowshoe story of Go Find the Story are supplanted by just one word that is more powerful. That word is permanent. For many years, the blight that is this country's record in dealing with missing and murdered Aboriginal women has not been consistently looked at. It has resided for too long within the narrow range of advocacy. And the more we looked at the file, the more we realized we could help. The capacity of the politician and the police was clearly limited. But for the globe, we saw an opportunity to bring leadership, and others are following. We are permanently committed to finding and solving all of the cases. This work will last not a few months, but years, and it is not for the lighthearted. The depth of responsibility felt by my reporters, led by Catherine Blaise Carlson, bravely punching through the talk and getting to the heart of the stories is inordinate. The Globe is committed to this being a permanent inquiry. And in two months' time, a respected Argentinian anthropologist is coming to advise us, not on those who disappeared by the thousands in Argentina, 
but to assist us in helping us solve a distinctly Canadian problem. When we carry out investigative work, we satisfy four principles. It must be ethical. We must have a defined and achievable objective. We must be relentless. And we must accept at all times that we may be wrong. And that fourth supplants the previous three. The four principles are not mine, but they guide me. They belong to my hero, Sir Harold Evans, who I believe to be the greatest editor of the 20th century. Harry ended the death penalty in Britain after posthumously clearing the last man hanged. He outed Kim Philby as a Russian spy. And he spent three decades getting justice for the children born with malformation of the limbs after their mothers bought the -the over-the-counter drug called thalidomide starting in the 1950s and 60s. The total number of people affected by thalidomide represents the largest man-made disaster outside war in all of our history. I had read much of that work as a student of journalism and a lover of investigations. Harry Evans saw down, together with my owner David Thompson's grandfather and father, threats from the parent company of thalidomide who were threatening to remove their advertising. The decision was the story will go on. So fast forward to last summer, where I received an email from a Philadelphia lawyer called Stephen Raines. He told me his father had worked pro bono for years to help the victims of thalidomide in Canada and had left a small endowment when he passed that was to be used to help those in most distress. The financial destitution was real. Stephen had grown concerned that the money wasn't enough. The thalidomide victims in Canada had spent 50 years since their birth working with their disabilities, and their bodies were growing more tired. At this point, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to pause and acknowledge from the stage Mercedes Benegbi, who has flown in from Montreal. Mercedes has flown in from Montreal just to be here today. She wanted to come and show support for what the work of journalism means to her and her fellow thalidomide victims. Mercedes has worked her whole life to make the case for a just settlement. And I first met her in August and gave my commitment to her then that we would see this through. Nothing nothing less than a complete financial package would suffice. It's been a long time coming. Later this month, at Hot Docs in Toronto, a documentary will be shown entitled Attacking the Devil, Harold Evans and the Last Nazi War Crime. I challenge any of you not to cry if you watch it. It is the story of Harry's fight for justice for those born with the disabilities. But what does that phrase, the last Nazi war crime, mean? What was it? Sarin nerve gas, we know, was created by the Nazis and was named after the initials of the surnames of the scientists who invented it. A complex compound was created by the scientists as an antidote, a miracle drug, they said. After conviction at Nuremberg, the lead scientist was not hanged, but he was banned 
from working in pharmaceuticals ever again. So after the war, he found employment in a soap factory where he began to produce that compound that became thalidomide. The linking of the Nazis to this man-made disaster has only been discovered in full in the last couple of years, more than 30 years after the first story was written. Journalism takes the long view. It must be in order, in order to be memorable and trusted. In Canada, our reporting over nine days late last year led to a unanimous vote on the House of Commons floor that proclaimed Mercedes and all Canadian thalidomide victims had been treated unjustly and the government would honour its promise to finance their futures. Final details are still being worked out, and the Globe and Mail commits to keeping a close eye on Health Canada. But I believe that this example is as good as any in exploring and answering the question, what is the role of journalists in the 21st century? Thank you very much. As I mentioned earlier, um, David's agreed to take a few questions. So we've got some volunteers and a roving mic. Um, so, Bruce. Hello there. Thank you very much. That was fantastic. Uh, you ended with the question of what's the role for the 21st century of journalists. I want to ask you about the role of the vehicle, the delivery vehicle, the print edition. I have never been able to convert to any of the other options. It make, makes me sound 150 years old, but I just love print. 25-year-old says they get their news on Twitter. So how long do you think the print edition will be here? And more importantly, does it matter if it goes? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And I apologize. I, I can only, uh, in any speech, you can only limit yourself to a certain number of strands. But there are, are so many areas to, to discuss. On print, it, its future, I'm very bullish on its future. I think that there is a serendipity to the print that allows you, back to my referencing around having a finite information flow, is something in a busy life you're attracted to. Editors choose a selection of stories. It's then printed. Uh, the engagement level is something that is uh, a much more personal and rich social contract in print than it is in any other uh, technique of delivering news, in part because when you allow something into your house, you've decided it represents certain values. And so you can choose any or all papers, but it's a contract. And I think that the engagement and the relationship with print is different than the aggregators can offer. Uh, equally, we establish hierarchy in print. We design things. Our front page is more important in many ways than another page. But equally, you can only fit so many stories on the front. So for many people, they make their own front page just by reading the entire place, the entire paper. So I'm bullish. Um, Advertisers continue to commit to print, and uh, they're usually the leading indicator. We have a question over here. So I also want to thank you for a really spectacular, very engaging talk. My question for you is you mentioned um, a few kind of partnerships that you're creating now with Google to sort of um, uh, amplify or rework the algorithm, bringing on um, anthropologists to sort of uh, further your agenda of social advocacy and justice. So my question is, what kind of partnerships do you see forging with the entertainment sector in this world of 
you know, Serial and the Jinx, who are now performing a kind of investigative journalism role. Do you see any kind of partnerships there? Yeah, I think on that I don't need a partnership. I just need to do what they're doing. I think it's a very good thing. Um, on the, the missing and, and murdered file, uh, we're getting closer to identifying a killer uh, who the police probably will never charge, and we'll have to decide the level to which we're prepared to go on that. But the intent is that we will actually do that as a podcast. And it won't, you won't see it for months. It's months away. Well, may I ask? A, oh, sorry. Paul. I just wanted to, your opinion. I think in your speech you used the phrase journalistic failure and that if that occurred on your watch, you were solely responsible. What about, um, what is your take on what occurred in the U.S. recently? I believe it's Rolling Stones and the university piece, and how do you, how does that happen? Yeah, it's, I think the, it's one of the most common questions asked, and it, it in, in isolation, does more to expand the level of distrust than any number of good pieces can offer improved trust, and that's why I think it's very important that the journalism community meets with forums such as this to try and begin a dialogue because we really only introduce the conversation at a point where there's been a failure or an extreme win. Uh, Rolling Stone, they failed internally uh, because they failed the fourth test, which is always assume you may be wrong. Uh, Checks and balances exist. I have never, in the millions of words that I have published over 25 years at nine news organizations, ever met a journalist who has intentionally done something wrong, but I have met many who have done things wrong, and it's because it's a human endeavor and it's a combination of uh, closed minds uh, that had naturally positive intent. It's the pace of reporting. It is uh, being taken in by a source who was wrong. Uh, the model always has to be, if in doubt, leave it out. And I think sometimes a story such as the, the campus rape story in the Rolling Stone was too good to be true. And so when it is, it probably isn't real. So it's an internal structural problem. Uh, there, was an in, there was an independent review done by the Columbia Journalism Review uh, dean or former dean, uh, which is uh, a very useful read. Uh, I read it. Uh, it instructs me. Uh, when it gets to uh, what I would, I suppose, refer to as a franchise play, when the Globe and Mail's uh, capital is being put into the marketplace by saying this is a story, I will have final say-off, and uh, I live and die probably by that decision. And so if I'm wrong, I'm probably out. And that's fair enough. Thank you. I think we have another question over here, David. Uh, journalism uh, programs around the country are questioning themselves. Some of them are closing down. Some of them are getting smaller. Uh, what, what kind of thoughts do you have on the future of training journalists and, and why this is happening? Uh, my, my greatest uh, advantage was not going to journalism school. Um, I went to a, a school called the Thompson School of Excellence in uh, the northeast of England, and they taught me shorthand and libel law, and they applied it against three of the newspapers in Newcastle that I then worked for in, a, in an indentured process that lasted two years before I got a byline. Uh, a byline was to be earned, and my mother was convinced I wasn't even going to work. But uh, I think the, the, the J schools uh, are, are probably healthier in their attendance levels now. They were overheated. There were far too many people going in to journalism. I, I, and I think 
certainly at an undergraduate level, it's hard when you're 18, perhaps, to know what to do. So journalism sounds kind of cool. Uh, but often they become PR or other areas. My own amateur pie chart of the 100% would suggest that within seven years, most people leave journalism. And within 15, they're pretty much gone. I'm completely ruined. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I, I love it. I see it for what it is. Uh, but it's a hard job. And I think the, the cloud where we have really destroyed our own product of journalism by complaining and talking about disruption and oh, woe is me, only accelerates the, the lack of, well, why would I do that? There's no stability. There's not a lot of money. I'm not going to be at home for dinner with my family. It sees a reduction in the numbers who are doing it. But equally, the stats show that the marks of the people applying remain above average. They're high. They're over 90. So I think they, the, those who are attracted are attracted probably because they're extremely bright, and they may have enough of the tenacity to, to make it work. But uh, J-School isn't uh, a prerequisite to succeed. David, let's take one last question, and I believe it's over here to your left. Thank you. I just wanted to build on, on what um, Bruce had to say, um, because you haven't really said much about the financial challenges of being in this business. My understanding was um, La Presse has been very successful at transitioning to a tablet model of the business. It still has a print edition, but in fact it's doing quite well with the tablet. The three papers in Toronto are all experiment, are likely to move forward with tablet editions. You didn't, I'm not sure if you alluded to that when you said in a month's time we're going to be doing something. Is that what you're talking about, is transitioning to a new format which is going to maybe combine the best of what we love in the newspaper, but in a different tactile way? Yeah, I can't speak to the La Presse model because their figures are unaudited. <laughs> However, the, uh, the, the, what, the, what they're modeling is a binary proposition. They're basically saying, we want to kill the paper, but the advertisers and the readers aren't quite there yet. We wish they would because we want to go to tablet. Toronto Star is uh, going to a tablet. They're hiring dozens of people and creating a, tab a tablet unit. Uh, that uh, is a critical mistake for them. Uh, for two reasons. Financially, it's far too expensive. Uh, and secondly, it creates a them and us attitude within a newsroom. What the Global Mail is doing is saying we have five platforms. I have a newspaper, I have a magazine with report on business and other areas and on advisor. Uh, I have the desktop, which has uh, a very large audience, a smartphone with a large audience, and a tablet with high potential for revenue based on time spent and time engagement. <laughs> You can argue whatever in terms of the industry standard. If you get three minutes on an article, which to the poor journalist is heartbreaking, three minutes, you spend a, that is seen as pretty good. If you can get five minutes, you're pretty much reaching a holy grail. The Globe and Mail every weekend is hitting anywhere from nine to 12 minutes on some significant articles, which allows for time spent, allows for advertising to be placed against that eyeball that we can actually show in terms of the cursor level how far down a story uh, gets with the reader, the level of engagement becomes a new, uh, a new model. So the tablet is part of that. And for the Globe next month, we will be uh, introducing a responsive design tablet app for both tablet and iPhone that will be significantly different from the LaPress model for competitive reasons. We're not talking in detail, but it is uh, going to showcase what I think actually is one more uh, arrow in the, in the armory that 
perhaps those who would choose to go all in with just a tablet will find to be their disadvantage because they don't have range. We believe in print. We believe in desktop and smartphone for reach. We believe in time spent in the immersive qualities of tablet, and we believe in magazines as well, which remain incredibly valuable to us. Uh, so we're going to try and take all rather than choose a one. Uh, but undoubtedly, the, the arc is people are moving to mobile. But for quality journalism, the tablet is, is well-born for, for that work. Great. Thank you very much, David. Jillian. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jillian Smith, and I serve as a director of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Mr. Walmsley, on behalf of the Canadian Club, I'd like to thank you very much for the depth of your insights and fascinating analysis of current and future trends in your profession. As you pointed out, journalism is an integral part of society. It's a relationship with readers that is built on trust that is earned every single day. The Globe and Mail has long enjoyed a solid reputation for reliable and trusted journalism. And David, we are certain that you will continue to provide guidance and leadership, not only to the Globe, but to the entire profession as it adapts to new digital and consumer demands and realities, and you will provoke the changes needed to reinvigorate public affairs in Canada. Please accept our very best and warmest wishes for long-term success as the Globe's Editor-in-Chief. Thank you. I'd like to echo uh, Jillian's message and thank David very much for joining us today. Now, can you stay afterwards? Because we didn't get to my six questions. So, all right. Thank you, everyone, again for joining us. And before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd just like to draw your attention to our event survey cards on each of your table. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience, so please take a minute to help us by sharing your thoughts and comments, including whether you like our new shortened luncheon format this season. We very much appreciate your feedback. This concludes our program today, uh, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We'd like to thank uh, MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's event. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the club and our upcoming uh, season, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Thanks all of you for joining us today. Our meeting is now adjourned.